Let's grab our Bibles, go to the book of 1 Samuel this morning, 1 Samuel chapter number 1, Old Testament. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel. And we're going to be in chapter number 1 this morning. I'll be introduced to our cast of characters in just a moment. Uh, one thing I do want to make sure you're aware of, February the 4th, I believe, it is a Sunday night. Uh, will be our annual church members meeting, family table, will be potluck style dinner. We'll talk about uh, what God did in our church for the last 12 months. We'll look at what we believe God's calling us to over this next year in 2024. That's hard to believe, right? 2024, this next year. And so if you are a member, we'll make sure you're in attendance for that. That's February 4th. If you're not, of course, you're welcome to attend and be a part of that. Uh, we'll have budgets available for you next Sunday. If you are a member, you can get those from Pastor Justin if you're interested uh, and taking a look at that in the weeks leading up to that annual meeting, okay? First Samuel chapter number one, we're going to read uh, the first section of scripture here. We're going to work our way through the first 20 verses. This uh, series is not going to quite be verse by verse through the book of First Samuel. We're going to be looking at the life of one individual in this book, okay? So there will be moments that we skip chapters, we move around. So not quite as much verse by verse through the entire book of Samuel, but looking at kind of a biographical study of this individual. And uh, we're starting verse number one. And uh, see where he comes from, right? See the birth of Samuel and the home in which he was raised. So verse number one, the Bible says, Now there was a certain man of that word, Ramathaim Sophom, okay? Um, if I said that wrong, you can't say it right either, okay? Uh, of Mount Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah. This is dad, okay? The son of Jeroam, the son of Eliahu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, and Ephrathite. That word Ephrathite might be foreign to you. Um, but might stick out in some of your Christmas songs, Bethlehem Ephrata. Okay, this is the city of which David is going to come from. Here, Ephrathite is where uh, Elkanah is from. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. This man went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priest of the Lord, were there. And when the time was that Elkanah offered, he gave to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters portions. But unto Hannah he gave a worthy portion, or a double portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had shut up her womb. And her adversary, that's Penina, also provoked Hannah sorely, for to make her fret, because the Lord had shut up her womb. And as he did so year by year, when she went up to the house of the Lord, she provoked her. Therefore, Hannah wept and did not eat. Then said Elkanah, her husband, to her, Hannah, why weepest thou? Why eatest thou not? Why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to thee than ten sons? I love Elkanah. He's got a healthy self-confidence, right? Uh, am I not better to you than ten children? Uh, obviously not, right? We'll stop there. We're going to work through this. I want to give us a little bit of a context um, for where we are in the story of Scripture, okay, to make sure we understand where we are in Israel's history, just for sake of context, on the timeline of God's people, we go in reverse a few books. We find ourselves in the book of Joshua. Joshua is leading God's people. Uh, Moses has delivered them from the na uh, nation of Egypt, from slavery. Joshua leads them in this process of claiming the promised land, right? We see the military battles. We see the victories that God brings through Joshua as Israel finally claims the land that was promised to them. In Joshua, we see him make a promise before God's people and to the Lord, 
where Joshua says, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord, right? He makes this guarantee, this promise. Some of us have that promise hanging up in the walls of our home, right? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The nation of Israel responds to that in Joshua 24, verse 18, where they say, therefore, will we also serve the Lord, for he is our God. This is the covenant that Joshua is making before the Lord. The nation of Israel follows their godly leader and says, you know what? He is our God. He is our Lord. We're also going to serve him. And as long as Joshua is alive, things are going pretty well. And even as long as Joshua's leaders or the ones that Joshua trained were alive, the nation of Israel is pleasing to the Lord. They're, they're following after the truth of what Scripture teaches. They're, 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 they're fulfilling, they're worshiping, they're faithful. And then those that Joshua had trained begin to pass away, and the next generation takes over. That generation for us is recorded uh, for us today in the book of Judges, which I like to call the book of disaster, okay? Uh, the book of Judges is the exact opposite of the way that Israel functioned under Joshua and his leaders. They begin to follow after other gods. There was a time of not just spiritual decline, but of national decline. Judges 17, verse 6 is the summary of the book of Judges, where the Bible says, In those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. That was the time period of the judges, that, that individuality of not following after God, but everyone doing what they felt like doing. That doesn't sound familiar, right? Uh, everyone doing what they individually feel like is correct led to a time of national disaster, of national decline, of disunity. There was a lot of division that took place in the nation of Israel. There was this kind of scattered confederation of tribes. There was no like standing army in Israel at this point. That kind of folded it was just a big mess, okay? They basically traded the physical wilderness of Moses, leading them through the physical wilderness. Now they've traded that for spiritual wilderness, okay? And now they're in the promised land, but they are wandering spiritually. They have no direction. They have no real allegiance and faithfulness to the Lord. And that's where we find ourselves at the beginning of the book of 1 Samuel, okay? It is a time of national decline of spiritual decline it is a time of failed leadership it's a time of failed morality it's a time of compromise and it was during that time of compromise that god decided to move that's a good opportunity for us just to take heart this morning okay sometimes we can turn on the news and we get so discouraged or we open up the newspaper if you still do that okay and you read the news and it's just so disheartening of what's going on and what's around us and the disunity and the and the division and the decline morality and and we just get so discouraged we can still take heart this morning that even in moments like this god is still in charge in this world what are we guaranteed we will have tribulation but we can be of good cheer why because he's overcome the world and greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world god is in charge so we can take heart even in times of compromise even in times of spiritual decay we can take heart that God is still on his throne. Samuel is going to become God's bridge builder. If you study Old Testament history, Samuel is an incredibly important figure in Old Testament history. He, he bridges the judges to the prophets, okay? He is the last of this line of judges. We're introduced to the book of Judges, guys like Gideon and women like Deborah, these, these, these judges, these kind of icons leading spiritually for the children of Israel. Samuel is the last of the judges, and he will begin a new line of prophets that come following Samuel. And this kind of the prophets that are following after Moses. He's a really key figure in the history of Scripture. And there's a time where everything's falling apart, where God orchestrates the birth of a baby. God orchestrates the birth of Samuel to be his voice, his 
backbone, his, his conviction in a time of spiritual compromise. Just think for a second about the, the story of Scripture, right? Think about all the times that God chose to initiate a new era through the birth of a baby, right? You've got Moses in Exodus, where we have um, God, Moses being called to lead God's people out of slavery. Here we have Samuel being the one, the, the baby that'll be born to bring God's people back to a, a worship of Jehovah. We have John the Baptist being born as the one who's going to be the foreteller, the one who's going to prepare the way for the Lord, this baby that was born. And then obviously we just got through Christmas where the ultimate baby is born, right? This new era, this new testament where Jesus is born to change the world forever. But again, in our text this morning, the birth of this child, Samuel, will change the spiritual direction of a nation. Imagine that. In a time where the word of God and the truth of God wasn't wanted, wasn't received, was ignored, God chose at this moment to raise up a prophet to speak for him, a voice to speak for God, an example to live for God, a life lived with conviction for God in a time of great compromise. And I hope we can start to see why this study is relevant for us today, because we do live in a world that I think is eerily similar to the world in which Samuel was going to enter a world of compromise, a world of spiritual decline, a world where the word of God is not only not received and ignored, but outright rejected and opposed. We are in this kind of world, so I think it's appropriate for us today to understand that God is still looking to raise up men and women and children of conviction to live and be an example and speak for him in a time of compromise. Our theme verse for this study is 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 35 where God says, I will raise me up a faithful priest that shall do according to that which is in my heart and my mind. What a great verse to claim for us this year, right? What, I want to be a faithful priest that does according to that which is in God's heart and in God's mind. I do what God wants me to do. I live the way God calls me to live. God is calling Samuel to this, and I believe this morning he's calling us to it as well. So that's the context of Israel, okay? Time of spiritual decline where Samuel's going to be raised up in this conviction. Now, today, we're going to look at the context of Samuel, okay? Not just the, the world in which he was raised, but the home in which he was raised. Samuel is going to be raised with a backbone, with a spine, with a conviction that God will use to change a nation. The question for us we should be asking is, how does that happen? How is that conviction developed? How is that backbone instilled? And I believe we can see that Samuel's conviction starts in the home of Samuel. Samuel's conviction starts in the home. There is a massive correlation between the character of Samuel's parents and the character of Samuel himself. There's a really strong connection. I don't think this is a coincidence that Samuel was raised in the kind of home that he was raised in and became the kind of man that he became. A life of great conviction is often raised in a home of great conviction. And it is difficult for us this morning to exaggerate the impact of godly parents upon their children. It is difficult for us to overstate how important the home in which a child is raised is. The Holy Spirit gives us these whole first two chapters of the book of Samuel to show us this truth, that the home of conviction is important. He details for us the life of the parents of Samuel, their impact, their example, their prayers, 
how they raised up their son to serve the Lord. So this morning, we're going to talk a little bit about the home. And you say, well, I'm not married. We're, a lot of us in this room are parent types, right? You have kids that you influence. Some of you are grandparents, and you have grandchildren that you're influencing. Some of us have nieces and nephews and loved ones that we influence. I think we'll find application for many of us this morning. But let's look for just a few moments at the home of conviction. How does the home of conviction happen? Well, first of all, it happens by example. Number one, it begins by example. I want us to remember we are in this chapter in a time of great compromise, yet we're introduced to a couple here. Their name's Elkanah and Hannah. And in the middle of a time of national decline and national spiritual disaster, there is a godly couple seeking to honor and please the Lord, Elkanah and Hannah. I don't think it's any coincidence that Samuel comes from their home. Verse number one, we're introduced to Elkanah. It says, there was a certain man of that word, of Mount Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, and Ephrathite. Now, you say, who are those guys? Honestly, we don't know anything about almost all of them. I almost think it's on purpose that verse number one says, the certain man of a random city who was the son of certain people that are also random and unheard of, to tell us there wasn't anything necessarily iconic and special about the line from which Samuel came. This isn't like the tracing the lineage of Jesus where we see kings and rulers. This is a random family who just chose to serve the Lord. This is a family that chose, as for me and my house, like Joshua said, we're going to serve the Lord. He says he had two wives. One is Penina, one was Hannah. Penina had, Penina had children. Hannah didn't. We see a, a few different things about this guy, Elkanah. We'll start with him, and then we'll get to Hannah in our second half. Okay, Let, let's study the life of Samuel's father. And you may have missed the example that he lays for us. I want to go back through it and, and show us what example Elkanah was. The first thing we see is that Elkanah gave an example of faithfulness, of faithfulness. Look at verse number three with me. Verse three, this man went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. So yearly, he would take his family on this journey to go up to Shiloh. Now, Shiloh was the place where the tabernacle dwelt. That would have been where the Ark of the Covenant was. That would have, to, to summarize, that's where the Spirit of God was. He took his family on this annual pilgrimage to get near and to the presence of the Lord. This is the place that Elkanah led his family to worship. Year after year, Elkanah led his family faithfully to worship. Now, where was Elkanah leading his family? He was leading his family to the presence of God. Now, our context is a little bit different. We have the presence of God within us, right? We have, are the temples of the Holy Spirit. We don't have a physical tabernacle at that point. But the example for us is still the same. Think for just a second. If you're, if you're a dad or husband or a man in the room, think for a second. This dad was leading his family to the answer to life. He was leading his family to the presence of God. He says, this is where the answer is. This is where your hope is. This is where your substance is. It is in the presence of the Lord. It's a beautiful picture. In this time of spiritual apathy, we see a father leading in spiritual fervency. In a time of spiritual decline, we see a husband leading his home in spiritual hunger, in spiritual passion, in spiritual fervency for the things of the Lord. This is the power of God-designed spiritual leadership in the home. It is the responsibility for a husband and father to lead his family faithfully to the presence of God. 
Understand, guys, it is, we have a chance to lead them not to the life-sucking wilderness of worldliness, but we have a chance to lead our families to the life-giving well of living water that is only found in the presence of God. That's a responsibility. That's a privilege for us to lead our families faithfully. I think it's one of the reasons coming out of 2020 that so many of us really struggled spiritually. There was a struggle for many of us as we were all cooped up in our homes trying to grow and learn on YouTube, uh, watching sermons and things like that. There's, there's something about faithfully gathering together in the presence of the Lord together. Now, again, there is no, this is not the tabernacle, okay? There is no power in this building itself. Uh, there's actually a, a negative power if you've been along our renovation process, okay? Uh, like, there, there's nothing special about the structure. This is wood and nails and brick and mortar is what this building is. But this place is where the temples of the Holy Spirit that we have within us gather together. And that is something that is immensely special to the Lord. You see that throughout Scripture. Gathered together in this way is important. And we have an opportunity to lead our families into the presence of the Lord, into the worship of our God, to the praise and glory of Jesus. One of the great aspects, I believe, of spiritual leadership, of healthy spiritual leadership, is just faithfulness. Faithfulness to the Lord. Year by year, he took his family into the presence of God. And I think we see right here at the beginning that the faithfulness of Elkanah sets the stage for the faithfulness of Samuel. The character of Elkanah sets the stage for the character of Samuel. His son will be one of the strongest examples of faithfulness to the Lord we have anywhere in the Bible. Samuel will become. How does that happen? Well, he had a dad who was faithful. That doesn't happen by coincidence. It doesn't happen separated from the home that he was in. And man, this is, this is for me, this is a convicting responsibility. That we have a responsibility to lead our families into the presence of the Lord. There's an author named Steve Farrar, and he asked this question. Put it in your outline. Most men will die for their families, but will they live for them? I think if dads, husbands around the room, it would take us like three and a half seconds if someone asks us, will you die for your family? We're going to say yes, right? That's a very logical connection for many of us. We love our wives. We love our kids. We'll die for our families. But will we live for them? Will we live for them? Will we fight against the distraction and the sinful tendencies and the wasted time and the selfish pursuits? Will we live faithfully to lead our families to the presence of God? And I want to be really honest. I've had two weeks to write this message, and the longer that I wrote it, the more obvious it's become how much of a failure I am in so much of this, okay? Uh, as I read this these past couple of weeks, my failures in these areas were much more obvious to me than my successes, okay? So I want to say I'm with you. I'm with you in that struggle. I don't mean that, okay? But here's what I know. Even though I fail, even though I fall short, even though I don't always lead my wife and my family the way that I should, I know that God's not done with me yet. And I know that God's not done with you yet. That God's a God of grace and forgiveness and hope and strength. Where are we leading our families? Are we doing them faithfully? Where are we leading them? To who are we leading them? So an example of faithfulness. We see, secondly, an example of worship. So not only was he going yearly into the presence of God, we saw him sacrificing, verse 3, and worshiping God in Shiloh. He led his family to worship, to worship. This is the power of the example of a man who leads his family in worship to Jesus Christ. This power is found in a man who leads his family in gratitude and grace at the meal together for the provision of the Lord, blown away that God has once again provided. It's the power 
of the example of a man who leads his family as they walk on a, a hike throughout the woods to see the glory of God in creation. It's the power of the example of a man to, to lead his family, to see worshiping with his, his church family on Sunday morning as his most important appointment of the week. And second place isn't really close. That kind of leadership and power, the power of the example of a man who's caught in the word by his family, who's seen in scriptures by his children, who's caught on his knees in prayer by his spouse as an example of dependency and commitment and worship of God. The power of the example of a man who leads his family and filling his home with, with worship and the scriptures and, and songs of praise and also carefully governs what else is coming into his home. The power of a man who leads his family in worship. Now, as I say these things, you can hear this list of things, and you can go one of two ways like I did. You can choose to hear this and think, well, I'm a loser. <laughs> you can hear the accusations and the condemnation and the lies of the enemy as he tells you, you stink. And why do you even try? And your wife knows that's not you, right? Your kids know that's not me. We can hear the lies and the accusation of the enemy as he tells us how terrible we are and how big of losers we are. We can get discouraged, depressed about how we're failing in these areas. Or we can hear the conviction of the Holy Spirit, the strength and the encouragement that God gives us through his word, accept the inspiration from God that God wants to do something in my home, that God wants to do something in my family, that he's not done with me yet, that I'm a work in progress, that he still has more fruit to bear in my kids, more fruit to bear in my home, and embrace that conviction, embrace the challenge of change, and pray, God, help me. Bear fruit in me. I, I want to lead my family in this way. Bear fruit in my relationship with my spouse. Bear fruit in my children and my family. We can choose to give up, and so often we do, guys. I, I always laugh because Mother's Day and Father's Day, the messages are very different in church. I don't know if you guys have ever noticed this. At Mother's Day, it's like, moms are awesome. We love moms. Thank you, moms. And Father's Day is like, dads, you stink. Like, do better, dads, is usually the, the response we get. We're like, okay, all right. Um, and we can get defeated in those moments. I'm like, I, I know. I know I get distracted. I, I know I get frustrated. I know, I know I get tired. I know I get drawn away from these things. I know I, 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 know I have a responsibility of this, but I'm, I'm just, I'm doing terrible at this. We can choose to give up and resign. Or we can choose to pray and get up in God's strength and power and forgiveness and grace and say, God, I want to do things differently. I want things to change. I, I want to be an example to my family of faithfulness. I want to be an example to my family of worship. One of my favorite quotes, I, don't, I can't remember who said it, but it was the signs of a healthy church. And he gave two signs. In a healthy church, there's uh, I think it was running children and singing men. There's something about men where we worship. That's very powerful in the lives of our family. And I know some of us in personality are like, you know, that's not really me. That's not really how I roll. That's not really how I go. Um, but the NFL playoffs this weekend, and many of us change personalities pretty quickly, don't we? All of a sudden, I'm okay with being a little more vocal. All of a sudden, I'm okay with being a little more loud. All of a sudden, I'm okay with jumping out the couch. Uh, I appreciate all the, the kind comments about Michigan being a national champion. I, I tried to tell you guys over the last several years this was coming, and it happened, and it was a great moment. And I'm sitting there, my kids are asleep, I'm trying to like cheer quietly, and I'm, you know, whisper going crazy, but, you know, in those moments where we're, we're cheering for random people that don't know us and don't care about us, right? How different is that from our spirit and our worship of the Lord who loves us so much that he gave himself for us? 
But God, give us a, a passion to worship him, to be an example of worship. I want my life, and man, I think you do too, and I think this is what Elkanah's life was, to be an undeniable example to my family. Most of us men, it will not be the words you are saying that will impact your children. It will be the life that you're living. I'm a lecture guy. I am. I have to catch myself with my kids sometimes. Like, I get, I get the point home, and then I go for another 15 minutes. Like, I'm just going to keep going. Um, and I have to realize, like, the words I'm saying aren't going to have nearly the same impact as the life that I live. The example that I set forth. Man, the greatest gift you can give your family is not provision. The greatest gift you can give your family is example of love and devotion and faithfulness and worship to your Savior. There's nothing more powerful in the life of your kids. There's nothing more used in the life of children. It's not going to be your cleverness, even though I know we're all funny, right? It's not going to be your cleverness. It's not going to be your giftedness. It's not going to be your money. It's not going to be your status at work. It's going to be your life of repentance and dependence upon the Lord. That's what's going to speak to the lives of our kids. And we need a lot of us to, to crawl back to God in a cry of dependence and trust and love and humility of God help my family, help me to be an example in my home. So much so that my kids have no choice but to say the Lord is at work in the life of my dad. God is doing something in the life of my father. An example of worship, an example of faithfulness. Number three, an example of love. Verse four, we get a window into the home of Elkanah and be encouraged. He's not perfect, okay? Verse four says in his home, there's two wives, okay? We're introduced to Hannah and we're introduced to Penina. Now, this is much more common in this time period than it would be today. Um, there was a heavy influence that was put on the responsibility of a family to carry on the line. More than likely, uh, Elkanah was married first to Hannah Hannah was unable to bear children, and then he took matters into his own hands, married Penina with the responsibility of carrying on his family line, okay? So uh, in summary, guys, don't do that, okay? Um, this is a, you want a recipe for disaster in your house, have a couple wives in there at the same time, right? Um, so Penina, Hannah, it'd be one thing if they got along, they do not get along. It's pretty obvious through the, the story we read that Elkanah and Hannah had a much tighter love relationship that there was compassion and empathy and, and care between Elkanah and Hannah. Penina seems pretty jealous of Hannah. We see Penina actually coming at Hannah every year, mocking her for the fact that she can't have children, kind of, you know, kind of stabbing her, and it says that she's grieved, she's hurt, she's wounded. Every single time as Penina comes and kind of stabs these little comments, and these jokes, and these uh, you know, mockeries of Hannah. Verse 4 says, when the time came that Elkanah offered, he gave to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters, portions. But unto Hannah, he gave a worthy portion, or a double portion. Look at this, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had shut up her womb. I love that part of verse 5. He loved Hannah, but the Lord had shut up her womb. This time period, the number one responsibility, unfortunately, there's the reality of history, the responsibility of a wife was to bear children for the family. She, she couldn't bring to the table what she felt was her sole, really major responsibility in life to do. She would have felt an unbelievable feelings of worthly, worthliness, uh, of just lack, of insecurity. But verse 5 says, Elkanah loved Hannah, even though the Lord had shut up her womb. Through Elkanah's imperfection, I think we can see an example of love. 
of what real love looks like towards his wife, Hannah. Barrenness would have been a terrible shame upon Hannah, uh, a, a feeling of, of neglect, a feeling of God's not seeing me, a feeling of why am I not bringing value. Penina brings it up again and again, how much of a difference there is between them just to wound Hannah and to bring damage to her. And Elkanah loved Hannah through her situation. Let me say it this way. He loved Hannah not for what she did. He loved Hannah not for what she gave. He loved Hannah for Hannah. He loved her for her. That's a good word for us, okay, men and husbands and dads. Love your wives for them. Beautiful, unconditional love. He's demonstrating compassion. He's demonstrating understanding. He's demonstrating assurance. So important for us to know. Because in verse 11, Hannah's going to make a promise to God in her prayer. She's going to say, God, if you give me a son, I'm going to give him back to you. I'm going to lend him back to the service of the Lord. Now, we understand for you go back in your scriptures to the book of Numbers, chapter 20. In order for Hannah to make that promise, she couldn't do that by herself. Sometimes we elevate Hannah, and for good reason, for this prayer and this commitment, she's going to give her son back to the Lord. Elkanah was very much involved in this process. Elkanah would have had agreed with this commitment that if God gives us a son, we'll give him back to him. Elkanah is aware of the commitment. In verse 19, I love this, is a picture of a husband and wife worshiping the Lord together, a husband leading his wife in these moments of anguish and pain and prayer and hurt. He's leading her to the one who has the answers. He's leading her to the one who can give life. He's leading her to the Almighty. Guys, we are not called to perfection. We are called to a direction. You're, you're not going to be perfect. And if you go home and try and pretend to be the wife that you are married to, like, I don't know why I said that, your wife, um, is going to be fully aware of your lack of perfection. Okay? If, you, if you're in the room and you're married and you think your spouse is perfect, you need to get married for like another, stick around for another week. Okay? or maybe another day, right? You're going to discover that person is not perfect, right? God is not calling us to perfection. God is calling us to a direction. We are called to lead our families in a direction of faithfulness to the Lord, of worship to the Lord, of love for the Lord. I think one of the greatest gifts, guys, you can give your children is an example of love and fidelity and purity in your relationship with their mother. It is a gift that you can give to your children. A strong marriage is an example to them. So we see Elkanah, an example of love, an example of worship, an example of faithfulness. This is a home of conviction that seems to be brought up in. A home of conviction not only comes from an example. We see, secondly, it is birthed through prayer. Through prayer. I don't think it's any coincidence, again, that Samuel, this guy with such backbone and conviction, came from a father who was a godly example and a mother who prayed, who prayed. There is such a strong connection here between Christians in history who are used greatly for God and mothers who prayed. If you don't like Christian biographies, you got to pick them up, man. They're incredible. And so many of these men and women who are used in these incredible ways for the Lord, you trace their line back to a mom who prayed. I don't know if you know the story of Susanna Wesley. Susanna Wesley was a young mom. She had 19 children in 19 years a lot okay difficult life nine of her children died as infants two sets of twins one child was accidentally smothered by a maid another died in a tragic accident she talks about this she says i will tell you what rule i observed when i was young and too much addicted to childish diversions 
I decided, she said, never to spend more time in mere recreation in one day than I spent in private religious devotion. Now, I have three kids in my house. You know how hard it is to get private religious devotions with children in your house? 19? 10 kids in the home at once? She actually had this apron that she would wear. She would sit in the corner of her house, and she would have an apron she would wear over her clothes, and she would lift it over her head. And she called it her tent of meeting. And the kids knew if mom's in the tent of meeting, you don't bother mom. And she'd be in there with her Bible, and she'd be in there, and she'd be praying, and she'd be reading scripture, and she'd be spending time with the Lord. Husband, basically a loser, mostly absent, not really involved. She'd sit in that corner in the room, pull her apron over her head, and meet and pray with the Lord. Committed to caring for her family, schooled all of her kids. She had a weekly appointment she would schedule with each one of her kids to check in with them and pray with them and encourage them and you know, just make sure they're doing okay. Conversation, prayer, discipleship. Susanna Wesley, of course, became the mother of John and Charles Wesley. Um, if you don't know those names, it is impossible for us this morning to overstate the spiritual impact of John and Charles Wesley upon the 18th century in our country. Charles Wesley would become the founder of the Methodist movement. Um, I should put a picture up. I have a picture of my meeting with Charles Wesley statue. Um, incredible guy. I don't think it's any coincidence that these men of conviction were raised in a home where they were prayed for. She led a life absolutely convinced of the power of praying for her children, of the power of prayer. Another principle in 1 Samuel, the prayer life of the parents will dramatically affect and impact the life of children. The prayer life of parents will dramatically affect and impact the life of the children. And we are in a day with so many diversions, don't we? We have so many distractions, so many pursuits. You have kids, there's so many programs you can focus on. I've got to sign them up for javelin throwing. I've got to, like, we've got to do everything, right? There's so many options, right? And all of them are, many of them are good. There's nothing wrong with these things. But there's so many of them, so many diversions. I get something in the mail, the email, the new thing I can sign my kid up for like every week, right? A new pursuit, a new opportunity, a new program, the activity we can engage in. Let me ask us this. How does our prayer for our kids compare to the programs that we orchestrate for our kids? How do our prayers for our children compare to the programs that we orchestrate for our children? Remember, in the end, it will not matter what school your kid goes to. It will not matter what degree they have. It will not matter how musically gifted they are. It will not matter what teams they played for, if they got a scholarship, if they made a ton of money. In the end, the only thing that matters, the only thing that matters is do they know Jesus? Do they know Jesus? Are they in a relationship with their creator through the faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. In the end, that's all that matters. That's it. And the way that we pray for our kids, the way grandparents, you pray for your grandchildren, that is one of the greatest gifts that we can give to our families. How do our prayers compare with our programs? Okay, this is where our theology has to impact our practice, what we do. Let's look at Hannah's prayer. First thing we're going to see, it's an intense prayer. It's an intense prayer. Let's start in verse number six. Her adversaries also provoked her sorely, this is, this is uh, Penina, for her to make her to fret because the Lord had shut up her womb. And as he did so year by year, when she went up to the house of the Lord, she provoked her, she wept, she didn't eat. Elkanah asked her, why are you crying? 
Why are you not eating? Why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to thee than ten sons? So Hannah rose up after she, they had eaten in Shiloh, after they had drunk. Now Eli, we'll get to Eli. This is a whole, we'll, get a, we'll go on a whole journey with this guy Eli, okay? Eli the priest sat upon a seat by the post of the temple of the Lord. It says that she was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sorely. Verse 10 tells us the prayer of Hannah was not some half-hearted attempt at connecting with the Lord. It says she is full of anguish. She is full of distress. Hannah is pouring out her soul to the Lord in prayer. This is a principle we don't like, but it's true nonetheless, okay? It is very often in our lives through pain and sorrow that the greatest blessings of our life are born. It is very often through times of pain and sorrow that the greatest blessings we have in our life are born. We see this over and over and over again in Scripture. There's people in this room that can testify that truth over and over and over again. If I hated this, this is the worst season of my life. I don't know why God put me through this, but I became so close to the Lord. This is the blessing that came from it. All the goodness of God is revealed to those moments. I don't like that principle. I wish that I grew like a weed in my relationship with Jesus when my life was comfortable. I wish I did. I wish that my prayer life was passionate when everything was great. I wish that my time in the Word was so, had so much fervor and energy when I didn't have a concern in the world. But guess what? It usually isn't. And it's when I'm going through troubles. It's when I'm going through difficulties. It's when I'm going through times of confusion. It's for Hannah, this, this season of barrenness. It's that that drove her to this dependence and anguish and bitterness of her soul and passionate prayer. F.B. Meyer said, before Samuel could be given to his people, Hannah must be a woman of a sorrowful spirit. Think about this. We want to raise Samuels. I don't want the sorrowful spirit. I, I want my kids, I want that passion in their hearts. I want that passion in my heart to, to, to pray for them and commit to them. I don't want the, the brokenness and the pain and the sorrow. But God knows that in order for us to be prepared to give our kids to the Lord, in order for us to be prepared to raise our children this way, we have to have that sorrowful spirit. And this is happening, I know many of your story in the room, this is happening in so many of our lives today that there's some things we're going through. There's some pains that we don't understand. There's some difficulty. There's some sorrow. But can I tell you something? Sorrow brings dependence. Sorrow brings desperation. Sorrow brings intensity. Would Hannah have prayed like this without her trial? Would Hannah have depended on the Lord like this without this difficulty? More than likely, no. God will often in our lives ordain difficulty to draw out our dependence. Sometimes, a lot of times we go through hard things and people ask you, Pastor, what is God doing? 99% of the time, I, I don't know. All I know is when life is hard, I have to depend on him, and that's a good thing. I, I, don't, I don't know why God gave us this cancer diagnosis. I don't know why God gave us this relational difficulty. I don't know why God is giving us this trial, this financial loss. All I know is if I'm going through something difficult, it's an opportunity for me to depend on the Lord. It's an opportunity for me to rely on him, to trust in him. I want to have that intense prayer. So many of us, I am, the, I am the king of this. I want comfort, man. I want things to be like how I want them to be. I want to sit where I want to sit. I want to, we talked before about how I don't like to you know, ride in the passenger seat of a car. I like to be in control. I like to be comfortable. But so many times we fail to understand 
that, that comfort that we desperately want, when we get it, so often it cripples us spiritually. I was so desperate for financial stability. I was so desperate for, for relational harm. I was so desperate for, for, for health. And now when I have it, I feel like when I, I, feel like when I had this, this health trial, I was closer to the Lord than I am now that he answered my prayer. That, that sorrow, that difficulty brings us closer to him. Sometimes the comfort that you and I so desperately want is actually the opposite of what we actually need. Intense prayer. Secondly, we see her prayer was focused. It was focused. Verse 11, she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thy handmaid and remember me and not forget your handmaid, but will give unto your handmaid a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. Okay, she gets specific. I want a, I want a man-child, right? I love when baby boys are born. My favorite description of a baby boy is a man-child. Like just look at that man-child. Look at that man-cub right there, right? Something special about that, man-child. You know, I, I, God, I'm praying you'll give me a, a, a son. And if you give me a son, I'm going to give him back to you. He's going to serve the Lord all the days of his life. Talk about not cutting his hair. Take a, uh, these vows that would be these spiritual decisions they'd be taking. You know what I, I find myself, so often I pray, and maybe you're guilty of this too, we pray such general prayers. God bless everyone. Bless my kids. What does that even look like? What, what does it look like for God to bless my kids? I won't even know if that prayer's been answered, right? B- give the world harmony, right? Bless everyone around me. Pray, but be specific enough when you pray so you can acknowledge when your prayers have been answered. Look what God did. I I really do believe in grabbing a hold of the throne of grace in heaven and pleading with God in desperation and with specificity, specificity for the things that I believe are his will for my family, that are his will for my children. I'm going to grab a hold of the throne and ask God for those specific things. Isn't it interesting in Luke 11, we just studied the the example of the impudent neighbor knocking, 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 knocking. I need bread. I need bread. I need, wake up, wake up your kids. I need bread, right? Continuing to go. Luke 18, the persistent widow going before the unjust judge, begging, I need justice, I need justice, fine, take it. How much more will your heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit? Forgive us for our apathy in our prayers. Forgive us for our vagueness in our prayers. Number three we see was constant prayer. I had to hurry. Number three, constant prayer. Verse 12 says that it came to pass as she continued praying before the Lord, that Eli marked her mouth. She, Eli starts watching her. Now, Hannah, she spake in her heart, only her lips were moving, okay? You ever find yourself praying like that? You're praying maybe in your, in your, in your mind, in your heart, but you, before you know it, your, your mouth's moving too, right? That's what she's doing. She's praying. She's praying in her own heart, but her mouth is, her lips are moving. Verse 13, Eli thought she was drunk. We'll, we'll learn about this guy. What a guy. Verse 14, Eli said to her, how long would thou be drunken? Put your wine away from you. And Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of a sorrowful spirit. I have drunk the wine or strong drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Count not thy handmaid for a daughter of Belial, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief have I spoken to. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, for the God of Israel grant thee thy petition thou hast asked of him. And she said, Let thy handmaid find grace in thy sight. The woman went her way and did eat, and her countenance was no more sad. Think about this. Hannah's faith, Hannah's devotion, Hannah's prayer, Hannah's passion had such strength that it rose above the understanding 
and rose to the level of the criticism of the nation's highest spiritual leader. Eli is the priest. He's not a priest. He, he's the priest. He is the spiritual leader for the nation of Israel. And he sees the passion in which this woman is praying. He says, woman, you need to cut it out on the, on the wine a little bit. And so now this woman, this woman's drunk. I think it says so much about the passion of Hannah. Humanly speaking, this guy, Eli, should have been the spiritual leader of this nation. But humanly speaking, the future of the spirituality of Israel rested upon the prayers of this woman that Eli thinks is drunk. Her child will be raised up to bring the people back to God from the place that Eli will have led them. Her son will eventually anoint King David in Bethlehem. And through that line of David, who comes? Our Savior, Jesus Christ. That, that's who's in her womb. The strength of a nation is riding on the prayers of Hannah. And so often the strength of the spirituality of a family, the strength of a nation rides on the backs of the prayers of women all throughout history, moms, aunts, grandmas, mother types, friends. Understand this. Hey, we can give our children all the fun, all the toys, all the experiences, all the vacations, all the activities, all the protection. But in the end, the greatest gift you can give your kids, you can give your grandkids, will be a life of prayer dedicated towards their relationship with Jesus Christ. God, would my kids love you? Would they know you? Would you reveal yourself to them? Would you, would you help their faith to be strong? Would you protect them from the temptation of the evil one? And if you're in the room right now and you're a believer, you're, you're in Christ, and you're, you've got any level of biblical mindedness, you've got no opposition to what I'm saying. Okay, all of us agree, yes, I need to pray for my kids. Yes, I need to be an example to my family. Yes, I need to do those things. We know it's right. But how come we don't do it more? I don't really have an argument for it in my own self. I don't really have an argument back. I just want to pray, God, would you help me to live this way? That my life would be used as a faithful example, that my life would be used as a constant prayer warrior in the lives of my family. It's constant prayer. Then number four, we see it's an answered prayer. It's an answered prayer. Verse 19, they rose up in the morning early, worshiped before the Lord and returned and came to their house at Ramah. Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. Wherefore it came to pass when the time was come about after Hannah had conceived that she bare a son, called his name Samuel, saying, because I've asked him of the Lord. Now understand, this was not a one-time prayer. This was years, years, years of prayer. Not one prayer of sorrow, years of sorrowful prayers, years of anguishing prayers. And I love that phrase, the Lord remembered her. Answered her prayer out of grief and perseverance and anguish, and faith. What do they name him? They name him Samuel. We'll stop here. But Samuel means heard by God. They named him. God heard my prayer, and he answered. We, we don't put a whole lot of, you know, emphasis on the meaning of names now. My name means uh, manly and strong, which obviously was correct when my parents uh, chose to name me, you know, 30 years ago, how much it was, right? No, okay. Um, but at this point, this point in time was really important. Like when you, when you named your kids, you were saying something. Because they understood what these names meant. When they called roll in elementary school, they understood what these names meant. They understood what, what many families were going through when they had this child. And for the rest of Samuel's life, the rest of Samuel's ministry, when they, Samuel walks by, everyone says, there goes heard by God. His mom prayed, and he's an answer to prayer. 
There goes heard by God, the leader of their nation, the leader of the one who would bring Israel back to faith and trust in Jehovah was the answer to the prayer of his mother. Heard by God. We're going to see through Samuel's life such strength and resolve and boldness. He's going to call sin out. He's going to remove sin from his own life. He's going to call out leaders. He's going he's to point the finger in some really awkward ways. That's going to take a lot of conviction. going to take a lot of resolve to know what is right and what's wrong. And I don't think this morning we can separate that from the home in which he was raised with a dad who led his family in worship, who led his family to the presence of the Lord, and a mom who prayed for him. Consistent, passionate, focused prayer. Samuel, man with backbone, was an answer to the prayer of his mother. My hope this morning is that we walk out not feeling like, man, I'm the biggest loser of a dad and grandpa that's ever been existent, right? I need to go home and, ladies, don't go home and buy an apron and put it over your head. Okay, that's not the option. If you want to, I guess you can. But you know, it's, this, it's this moment of, you know what, God, I, I want this to be me. There's, there's something good in that, okay? There's something godly in that. Of, you know what? I haven't been this. But you know what I'm going to be? And maybe in the ride home, some of you guys take the, whole, the hand of your wife and say, you know what, I'm, I'm gonna, I want to do that. I want to be an example in that way. And I'm sorry that on Sunday morning you have to drag my rear end out of bed. I'm going to lead it, okay? I'm going to go. And I want to be more passionate in, in, in leading our family towards this. I want to, when we're walking and talking, Deuteronomy talks about how we talk about the things of the Lord with my kids. When you're driving the car, the opportunity to invest in them, to teach them, to, to pray with them, to disciple them. I want to take this seriously. And ma'am, no matter how big of a loser he's been, our response needs to be good. I'm glad you want to do that. Not, we'll see how long this one lasts, right? We'll see, bro. Like, I, I know you, right? We'll see how long. No, good, right? And ma'am, I, I, we, we, we cater, we take care of, we, we, we get our kids in these environments where everything is so right and so perfect. But how does our programming for our kids compare to our prayers for our children? May we cover them with our prayers, our, and not just for health and safety, but for God to work in their lives. For them to know the Lord, for them to have a relationship with the Lord, because at the end of time, that's all that really matters. All right, let's bow forward to prayer. We'll continue with this study of the next few weeks. Father, we thank you for this life of Samuel.